It was during the time of the Cold War. And communism and our own way of life were very much in people's minds, and he was speaking to that subject. And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. Okay. Welcome back to another episode of The Left is Dead. We have another book to talk about tonight. We are joined by, well, I, I am alone tonight. So I am joined by uh, author, professor, uh, labor historian, Harvey Schwartz, who has written several books. He focuses mainly on oral history. Um, and the, one of his, his most recent book is what we'll be talking about tonight, which is Labor Under Siege. Um, a history of an oral history of the ILWU through its president from 2006 to what was it 2018 uh, Bob McElrath am I saying this right yeah okay I never know if I'm too Irish or not <laughs> have to check uh, so uh, Bob McElrath who joins the union in the Reagan era and goes through the Bush and early in early the early Trump era. So a lot of changes through uh, organized labor. Uh, you've also written uh, an oral history of the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, which I've watched some stuff on that I found pretty interesting. Um, a lot of oral histories of labor in the Bay Area. And you've written other scholarly essays and uh, in academic journals and in the ILWU's media itself, um, and you've conducted a lot of impressive interviews. Uh, this book itself has uh, won, what do we have here, the Nautilus Book Award winner, uh, National Indie Book Awards winner, and the Independent Publishers Book Award. So um, I, I enjoyed this book very much, and it speaks a lot to the ILWU's character in general. Um, as you were saying before we started recording, that I grew up in a more conservative union type state that's kind of gotten a little bit more radical now. But uh, I'm excited to talk about this radical union and how they do things on the West Coast. So, um, Harvey, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you very much for that nice introduction. <laughs> oh, well, I enjoyed all this. <laughs> I, 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 I enjoyed the labor history. <laughs> sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. So, um, we spoke before about, we've done an interview about Harry Bridges, obviously a much more notorious leader of the ILWU, who I, I, I've always been a big fan of. I've always loved the, the anti-communism rallies against them and their failures and everything like that. But I didn't know too much about the, I've known about, well, the more, radical elements of the ILWU, say the Occupy Oakland movement and things like that, and they're joining in. But I didn't know too much about the history of a period of time where I assumed every union was on the back foot. And in some way, the ILWU was defending the gains it had made, but it also stayed a radical union throughout this time. But the book starts in 1980s when Bob 
first joins the while well, he first starts working on the docks he's still lo uh, loading and unloading crate by hand um there's no automation there's no giant shipping containers as far as i understand it so what are as we leave the sort of nixon 70s and jimmy carter malay's end of the 70s and go into the reagan era what are the challenges that the ILWU faces like other unions across the country and what is what is their response and what makes the ILWU unique starting at this this kind of period well the union is facing um much of the same uh kinds of issues that the rest of the labor movement is, is is experiencing i mean um, big bob miguel there i think big because he's very tall you know he um he comes on the waterfront as you noted around um just around 1980, and um, this is the time that Ronald Reagan gets to be president, and Ronald Reagan is active in breaking the um, uh, the um, airline patrol, airline, uh, you know, the Patco people um, in the airline industry. Um, you know, that's what he sees. Employers are on the march. Employers begin to uh, to take uh, really their uh, their cue from Ronald Reagan and saying, okay, this is a time when um, the government's on our side. Um, we're encouraged by the president's activity and breaking a union. Uh, it's a time for us to go after uh, organized labor. And in a way, Bob sees it, and there is an influence on him to some degree that oh, we are now under, under attack or we're going to be under attack. He gets his first job on the waterfront about 1980-81, just about the time that Ronald Reagan is breaking the, uh, the PATCO strike. You know, and so you know the the union is is going to try to maintain its uh, aggressive stance and and its uh, militant stance, and it uh, you know it tries to do though so in protecting its jurisdiction, but it's still under the same kind of attacks that the rest of the labor union is under, and I think um, to some extent there's a sense, uh, not, notwithstanding being a radical organization in many regards, many ways, there's still a sense that you know we do have to protect ourselves and protect our jurisdiction now. This is not the 1930s. Um, uh, given all the attacks that occurred under the Taft-Hartley Act, that the employers began to take advantage of, you know, there are many aspects of the Taft-Hartley Act that are that are really to the advantage of the employers, and they really began to go after that aggressively. You know, the secondary boycott is now illegal. Um, you can have, uh, you can have. Um, uh, force meetings with the employees when if there's if there's a, an organizing going going on you can intimidate them that's okay that's considered employers free speech I mean this is right tremendous change after 1947 after the passing this act but I think employers aggressively go after these things around 1980 and now they've really got a guy who's on their side and in, in President Reagan um, you know and the union is going to aggressively try to protect his jurisdiction. Um, but, um, you know, there is a sense that you can't, you can't uh, declare, you know, a general strike every half hour, <laughs> you know, you right. got to be a little judicious. Otherwise, you know, you'll, uh, you'll end up broken. Well, I think something that's interesting is coming out of the 70s, you know, with the sort of push to neoliberalism and the move of jobs out of, say, Mich areas like Michigan and the Rust Belt. There's a defensive, not even a defensive, a sort of really counter, you know, a, a retreat by a lot of groups like the UAW. 
And what I found interesting in the early parts of this book is Bob starts, um, you know, Bob is encouraging the removal of sort of discrimination in how jobs are assigned. Because the, uh, the longshoremen have, uh, and we explained this on the Harry Bridges episode, the longshoremen have a unique process of uh, handing out jobs for the day. And could could you explain that again real quick, actually? Uh, they have a hiring hall that goes back to 1934, and they have, um, you know, essentially control of hiring. It was won in the 1934 strike. It was something that they wanted to uh, to win, to overcome, essentially corrupt hiring practices with kickbacks. You had to bring a bottle to the employer on the docks and so on to get your job. So they got they got control over the hiring hall. Technically, it's a it's a uh, employer-employee setup, but they got control over hiring hall through control of dispatcher. Um, you know, and yet, um, and it, it is, it, it, it is, uh, it is, is an equality system. That is to say, you know, there's no discrimination and you're not to be supposed to be discriminated against for race, ethnicity, um, uh, whether you're gay or not, it is not supposed to matter and so forth. In reality, it's not always been that's not always been perfect. In some locals, the system was not so inclusive. Um, but McGillrath, uh, in looking in even small issues like how people qualify uh, to get in a situation where they can get a job, you know, if there's a little test that had gone on and they were conceived, conceived of being discriminatory, McElroy stepped in and said, you know, we got, we, we got to clean that up. We can't do that. We're the ILW. We're not supposed to discriminate in any manner. So, you know, even though the hiring system was there and has been in place all along, you know, in every local, there is local autonomy in the ILW. Sometimes your regulations can be rigged a little bit to keep certain people out. Um, some of that was done in one or two locals historically, although that was way back. That's not the case now. But McElroy was particularly looking at looking carefully to make sure there was no discrimination. I I think it's interesting too that that happens during the 80s when we know other unions are going to push for well starting at a lower wage eventually by 2008 which uh, the ILWU is very active during 2008 then during the financial collapse at that point uh, you know the UAW approves tiered workers and things like this and while there is a seniority tier on the docks it works much differently where it's sort of based on how much you're willing to work and how long you're there, obviously. But I think the interesting thing about Bob and the ILWU is they're pushing to still integrate and further distribute the work out between all members than yeah. they are, say, trying to cut them into tiers or trying to make some type of deal with the employers. Um, and I think that's going into, I think, sort of going into the 90s where we see, you know, what should be a, uh, well, it should be a busy period for everyone, according to the Clinton idea of more economic, you know, activity globally will benefit everybody in the U.S. Um, obviously, that leads to jobs moving out of places like Detroit and uh, in the coastal cities. I would imagine during the 90s, things actually got more busy. But um, can you explain the sort of, fight in recent years and or the recent decades of against 
automation, automation and the mechanization of labor and how, how have things changed in the numbers of the ILWU of the membership numbers and what are the sort of the challenges they're facing now with all this, you know, AI and everything like that, obviously, and all the talk of even more automation. Yeah. Okay. A couple of things here. Um, first of all, the question of wages. There is one wage. Uh, the ILW was able to resist the two-tier, three-tier, and so forth system. Um, there are A-card and B-card people, and so that's a bit of a difference there. But if you do get a job, so some people have more in the A-card category, if you're promoted to that over time, you get um, more, you'll have more access to jobs first. Now, those are the first group of people out uh, to get the jobs. On the other hand, even if you're a casual, you get the same wage. So, um, you know, that they've been able to resist. Uh, weren't able always to resist everything, but um, by and large, they've been able to resist that. I'm sure there are little particulars one could come up with. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is, in terms of, of the automation, that's actually a big story on the waterfront. Uh, there was um, an effort by the employers to, to um, uh, automate, for example, uh, the ship clerks, people who keep records on the waterfront. At one time, this was a pencil and paper job. Now it's computerized. And the, the, the idea when this first came in, which is not that long ago, the idea was the employer said, well, we're, we, you know, we, we have no responsibility over the changeover. We have no responsibility for the old people. We have no responsibility to give you the jurisdiction over this work. So the union put up a big uh, scrap about that and said, if there's new jobs that come in, AI jobs or automated jobs, whatever, computerized, we have to have uh, the shot of those jobs. If a machine replaces people, we still have to have jurisdiction over that work. That is to say, a, a guy in the ILW or a woman in the ILW, uh, you know, will um, will deal with the uh, the new machinery. And so that was a big deal and a big lockout in 2002, which became a huge fair in the west coast the employee locked out the union for 10 days over that uh um finally the principle was was achieved that um if there is changeover the jurisdiction still goes to the ilw um in some sense it goes back to the 1934 uh, contract the first contract which said the employer has the right to, to move in new technology well, in 1934, no one could conceive of the kind of electronic, uh, uh, kind of technology, technological change we've right. seen in our <laughs> in our period, you know. But the union has still tried to stay with this, and as the employer has said, well, we're going to have automated docks and so forth. The union continually tries to say, well, uh, if jobs are eliminated or changed, we still have to have that jurisdiction. So they really try hard to stick with that. Uh, Bob has complained at times that the employer will. Uh, make a, an agreement in the contract and then chisel around the edges. And he talks about that to some degree in this book. Because that is a large union still tried to deal with automation that way. And they did in their last couple of contracts as best they could. I, yeah, we, I think you see that here too, where um, we've spoken to um, UAW organizer and a UAW organizer who was working in the seventies where around the Great Lakes region, where the, priority was here and there it's try and keep a hundred couple hundred jobs here try and keep a couple hundred jobs there and obviously that's sort of 
fight against jobs either going somewhere or just not existing due to automation has been a huge problem. Um, I find it interesting that uh, this is sort of going a new way now with, you know, I say AI, but I think that'll apply more to, you know, professional jobs or white collar jobs as uh, a disruptor. But <clears throat> I think that, I, I don't know, do you think that there's something that can be related between, say, these white collar workers who are now striking in a lot of industries and say Starbucks employees who are being punished with new technology, obviously like, you know, they're not getting the, uh, we talked to a striking Starbucks worker who wasn't getting the new equipment to get properly tipped and encourage tipping so that, you know, they were being deprived of new technology. And now there's new technology to babysit a lot of people, including, you know, now zoom, which we're talking on now, which is something that employers use to babysit people over COVID. Do you think that there's some lessons to be learned from, or lessons that can be related from, say, the automation at the ports? And do you think that there's new questions that are going to come up that, that can't be answered because a lot of this is now surveillance technology, not just the removal of jobs, unfortunately? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think it's extremely difficult. It's been a problem that goes back to the Lillites. It goes back, you know, to the 18th, to the, to the, uh, the 19th century when you first had looms coming in and the employee, you know, workers destroyed some looms, attacked some looms. Um, the great labor historian, uh, E.P. Thompson said uh, that, um, um, yeah, the Luddites, uh, Luddite, <clears throat> Luddite, Ludditeism was solved on the scaffold. In other words, the workers were hanged. I mean, you know, uh, you have to try to be as clever as you can with resistance. I think the ILW has given it a try. I don't think everybody would agree with me, but I think they've given it a good try to try to say, okay, you're going to move in the machines. We are going to lose a certain number of people. The new work is going to be our work. Otherwise, you know, Bill Stryker will, whatever, you know, will, will, will resist you. Um, this first came about when you had a changeover from handheld at that time called, um, 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 what's wrong with me? It was handheld work uh, that was done in the waterfront. And you, you alluded to that earlier on. You change over to these big boxes, which are containers. And that was going to and did eliminate jobs and pretty quickly. Um, the union made a contract in 1960. It was called a mechanization and modernization contract. And the union took early retirement benefits and also was a guarantee that no worker wanted to stay on the job would get would get laid off. And it accepted uh, containerization coming on in, partly going back to, to the 34 contract, which said, you know, you can't resist new uh, technology. Um, there was a strike in 1971, I think in part over the over complaint, you know, that their jobs were disappearing as it, it it seemed likely would happen. And Bridges himself, you know, who had this had a very militant uh, background, you know, looked at what looked at 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 the container and he said, you know, we gotta get what we can get now and get the best deal we can. We can't, you know, it didn't work to destroy everything like the Luddites tried. We got to we got to be clever about it. We got to do what we can within the law and within the system as it exists. And uh, uh, 
Cherney wrote what's now the definitive biography of Bridges and Cherney basically says, Harry made the right decision. And in some sense, it really was the only decision. You know, whether other organizations can take advantage of that by looking at what the longshoremen have tried to do and have continued to do every time there's a new set of machines, you know, the workers, the, the union says, okay, um, we got to have the new jobs. I don't mean to be too repetitive, but that has been their answer. And maybe it helps other organizations. I certainly hope so. Um, obviously, we're facing a new wave now of, uh, you know, technology. Uh, but yeah, I would say, I, I, I suppose it relates in a way, you know, um, say like SAG after uh, the one of the things was AI, you know, as far as, you know, we're using that to not pay actors uh, and trying to not pay writers with uh, using AI. Yeah. And I think you've seen that a similar sort of resistance has gone on there where it's, we can't stop this, but we have to negotiate a contract around these things. And I think that that's, we've seen that a lot more. And now we've seen that a lot more, thankfully, with every union too. UAW's under new leadership. The Teamsters under are, are under new leadership. Um, and do you think it, I, I think that there's, I mean, I'll ask you, do you think that there's sort of a point where these, new unions and these older unions are converging where where there's a a meaningful resurgence in the labor movement now i mean do you think these obviously things are getting worse for working class people things are getting harder for all labors and i, I mean do you think that it, it seems like it to me i maybe i'm missing things but the casinos have been on strike here the, the uaw has been on strike here um the, the, you know the teachers have been on strike here every you know i i so does it seem like there's a resurgence where these sort of new and old unions are kind of coming together and forming a new labor union kind of outside the bounds of the, the sort of sclerotic unions that had formed over the years? I think so. I mean, it looks like it. Uh, this book was basically completed before I really realized that this new wave of labor enthusiasm was for real. Um, and the organizing pattern, you know, that's unfolded recently was was on the horizon, but I didn't quite see it at that at that at that point in time. I basically described what happened during what I considered an anti-union period. I will say that old timers like me and have been waiting for this for years to see the young people get fired up and to try to you know to do something. Um, so yes, I think there is a possibility of a rebound and change at this particular time. Historians are taught that they can't predict the future and nobody can, but it's still, nonetheless, it is encouraging. Um, one thing that bothers me to some extent right now or concerns me is you, you will find the employers resisting so hard, used to getting his or her way for so long uh, that there you know, is an effort to try not to accept the new union pattern. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, don't concede a contract. You have not seen a, contract in some of these big or in these big uh, big, big industries um uh, you know in starbucks in 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 amazon and so forth and so forth and so uh the employer is basically saying i'm gonna we're gonna wait these guys out we'll fire people we'll go to the national labor relations board they'll sue us for 50 cents we'll pay it okay that's fine um you know We'll still have our union busting programs on, uh, that are that are legal under Taft Hartley, uh, you know, 
force people to listen to anti-union uh, discussions put on by the employer and all that, you know, but it seems to me that where the rubber reads the mode is where is when you get a contract. And so I, I keep on waiting, you know, for Amazon and so forth, you know, to finally come across with a contract for the, for these folks. Um, given the handicaps, you know, an old duck like me has to look at that and be very impressed with what the young, young folks are trying to do, you know, uh, I hope it has legs. Yeah. And I think that, um, one thing I noticed, you know, in the ILWU's history is the ability to see past types of labor. Um, that's how they become the ILWU to begin with, right? They go in inland and find the warehouse workers and things like that. This, this union becomes much more widespread than it would have originally been had it just been longshoremen, right? And uh, do you think that's something that's say the Teamsters and the UAW, these bigger unions, um, do you think that's something that's sort of reminiscent of the ILWU? These larger unions are now backing things like service workers and this sort of new economy that's, you know, the post-Fordist type of economy that's built up now. Do you think that this is a good sign that these these more established unions of the AFL-CIO and things like that are actually now you know, in solidarity with these unions of like service workers and Amazon employees and things like that. Um, well, do sure you think that, that's an important thing that the ILW you did that's sort of translating to a wider thing now again. Well, the Sorry, ILW originally, yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, it's a very complicated actually situation. Uh, the ILW moved to become the IL International Luxury and Warehouse Union by engaging in a warehouse organizing drive in the 1930s before 1930, between 1934 and 1938. Now, the original reason for that was that they had waterfront warehouses that were very close to where the longshoremen worked. And the longshoremen realized in the 1934 strike that if we don't organize these folks, um, they could be turned into scabs by the employers. That is to say, they could be recruited for working if there is, if there is a strike uh, they could be recruited to take our jobs because freight handling in warehouses was not that much different in the 1930s from longshore work. 1936 or so, the employer said, I wrote a book about this, by the way, it's <laughs> called the March Inland. Uh, the employer says to the warehouse people, this is a really small local uh, local in the union at that time on the San Francisco waterfront has about 400 people or so. The employer says, well, we can't pay you these good union wages because uptown the people are working for very low wages, about half or third of what you folks are getting. We can't renew your contract because we can't compete with in that in that regard. So the union says, uh huh, this is the 1930s. Everybody is on the march. You have to understand it's a new era. It's the only thing I can compare it to in terms of the sweep of enthusiasm is the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which which I lived through and participated in a tiny bit, um, you know, and so the union said, well, what are we going to do about it? Oh, well, let's go uptown and organize those guys uptown. Pretty soon they have, instead of 400 members and their little local, by 1937, they have uh, 8,500, you know, and so over time in the 1940s, the union also organized field workers, that is to say, um, pineapple and sugar workers, agriculture workers in Hawaii. The reason there was they was that they, there was a famous leader named Louis Goldblatt who was Secretary of Treasury of the Union for years and years. 
Louis said, um, no, we, we, we don't really have uh, Longshore in the islands. Looked at the economy, studied it. He says, the economy is run by uh, the big five factors over there. They control agriculture. Agriculture controls the islands at that time. We have to go and organize the agricultural folks. Then we'll get control of, of the law of longshore. Um, very cleverly done. Well, pretty soon, when Louis was Secretary of Treasury in 43, by 1945, 46, they had 25,000 new members and mostly agricultural workers. So, you know, I mean, you could, I suppose you can see that a precedent for expanding beyond your basic jurisdiction. In ILW's case, there was you know, an economic angle and a, you know, a jurisdictional angle. Nonetheless, I think some of this, you know, the ILW presides something of a precedent. I'll always argue that, you know, I'm a bit of a partisan. Nonetheless, if you look at the AFL-CIO uh, split in 1935, you know, jurisdiction very tightly controlled was a big deal in the old day of Havel. You can't organize the immigrants. You can't organize the non-white people. You can't organize the semi-skilled. You can't organize the women. We're just going to stay with the skilled white man, okay? Well, that kind of got blown out of the water with the organizing of CIO in 1935, 6, and 7, and so on. Because they took in the semi-skilled workers. They took in black workers, and etc. And so the old aspect of jurisdiction was kind of thrown away or sign of done away with, and the old AFL to compete with the new CIO began organizing beyond just their their tight jurisdiction. So it does go back, you know, to the in some sense to the great CIO organizing rise of the nineteen nineteen thirties. And but I mean, you know, in recent years, the Teamsters organized all sorts of characters. The ILW has organized all kinds of people too. They've organized. Um, uh, people who sell books, for example, and uh, little booksellers, local, not so little, in Portland, Oregon, for example. Uh, they organized um, cotton conference workers in the Central Valley and Mexican and, and, uh, and African-American people in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Um, you know, so there is precedent for all this, and I, it's obviously the way to go, you know. Right, I think I see that in... Um, starting in Bob's story where they're working with, you know, Unite Here, which is a more service worker focused union, typically, um, typically more service focused jobs. And you see Unite Here kind of mixing in with other big unions across the country where this wasn't really thought of as a, a traditionally muscular union, um, but it's now you know, representing a large swath of people the same way uh, the CIO was meant to. And, and I think it's important to remember that the ILWU still uses, you know, a um, slogan from the IWW, you know, which is uh, obviously a full union for all labor. So I, I think that, yeah, I think that is also uh, something that maybe we're moving back past now that we're in a largely service-based economy. Maybe we're moving back past where we have these skilled trades unions and things like that, because that's not the job most people occupy, it seems like. Um the one thing I would say is you, you spoke on the 30s as being this sort of time. I, I, you, you have this period where FDR kind of tells employers, you figure it out. You know, the NLRB is established and the government is sort of more hands off with employers and employees. Do you think that there's obviously we go to Reagan crushing the New, New, New Deal consensus 
And now we have Biden, who some people will say is a new FDR. But do you think there's really any return to a, a, a state or a, a a Democratic Party or any other party that's going to be pro-labor enough to uh, support, sort of support these things? Because obviously the civil rights movement eventually got state backing through LBJ, whether what the motivations were. But FDR also backs the labor movement and its advances in the 30s. Do you think that we're going to return to any type of leader like that? I mean, obviously Bernie would have been that, but do you think that there's any movement towards something like that? And and do you need that anymore? I mean, obviously, I don't believe we need that, but do you think we need state the state to sort of sign on with any of labor's achievements? You in need the labor law to not be your enemy. Labor law was your friend in the 1930s when the National Labor Relations Board was finally enacted in 35. And it responds to a great degree to labor being on the march. And so in some ways, labor and labor people organizing, working class people forced the National Labor Relations Board to some degree on um, um, the FDR administration and Robert Wagner, you know, ran with it and so forth. And it, it, it conceded certain, uh, you know, benefits for organized labor. You, 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 know, you have a right to organize a labor of your own choosing. Uh, company union is not supposed to be what you're going to have. You're going to have you know, your own union with your own people in charge of it, and so forth and so forth. There were certain things the employer could not do uh, at that time. Taft-Hartley changes all that. I think in some ways to really have the, well, who the hell knows in terms of what the future holds, but it is a difficult problem for labor in that the Taft-Hartley Act has overturned to a great degree the labor rights um, and the protections of the, of, the, of the original act in 1935. I, I think it's, it may be the case. You see, I'm not saying definitely because I don't want to conf, you know, predict the future because I was taught not to by you know, all my professors. Anyway, you know, I think labor law needs to be modernized and needs to be brought up to date and so forth. Is it possible now? Um, there are too many uh, Republicans, I have to say, in the uh, in the Congress for that to happen right now. There was a labor law uh, suggested. It was passed, I think, in the House a few years ago. Free choice. There was a free choice act, and it uh, couldn't get the votes to be uh, uh, enacted. And then there was another effort just recently, and also, you know, it sort of died without having come to fruition. It was going to you know, allow for, the, for more, more organizing to go forward. Yeah, I think we see things like, well, we see in California with the, the gig economy proposals and things like that sort of get smashed down by Uber and all the other big, um, you know, sort of pick up work jobs and things like that. And obviously that's sort of a way that Things are moving where, hey, if you just don't know your employer or never have a, a real employer, you can't organize yeah. against one. You don't know who your coworkers are either. So, you know, obviously that's a way it's going. But I, I think that as far as I, you're right, the government uh, should obviously you want some type of friendlier labor law. But I think the Democratic Party also needs to recognize what labor looks like now. I think the closest person who came, you know, who closest one who got there was Bernie, obviously, who at least understood the type of person voting for him is somebody racked with debt. Somebody probably doesn't have a job that matches their degree, you know, 
that somebody who's probably not in a, a union, somebody's probably, you know, fired, or they can be fired at, at random. Um, I'll tell you, being employed in America, obviously, you know, and I think that the Democratic Party is sort of failing to recognize that. Um, do you think there's any risk of a critical mass of people falling for this sort of new populism on the right? Or do you think that that just will end up you know, destroying too many working people's lives for them to ever really take that mantle from the Democrats in any meaningful way. Uh, well, there, are, the Trump movement is a danger. There's no question. Uh, Mr. Trump may get himself reelected. Um, there are too many people who are just, you know, mad at the system, want to tear it to shreds. Um, and, you know, there, I mean, they have a critical mass of that sort now. Uh, and there's a 30 or 40% that, you know, is behind that movement, which is a, you know, it's a proto-fascist movement. There's, it's pretty clear, anti-immigrant, anti-black, etc. Uh, you know, I think this is a big swing election, this coming election. It's not going to, if Mr. Trump loses, it will not eliminate uh, the new Trump movement entirely. It'll still be there. There's still a lot of people in Congress who are adherence to his position, such as it is. Um, the, the one thing that's a possibility is there's a critical mass of voters who think that's not the way to go for the United States. It's not what, what the United States has been before. It's not what it should be in the future. I mean, we're going to have to see how, what that, what that uh, shakes down as. What impact that might have on labor is, is, a, good, is a good question. I mean, it, clearly Bernie had more of a sense of labor than Mr. Biden does. He's got a, a bit of a sense. Uh, he's still a, a mainstream politician. Uh, right. And when the Democrats are sort of pushing the same narrative on the border or something like that as the Republicans are, it doesn't really help anyone. You know, it doesn't help any working class person. And when there's a failure to yeah. address any class politics or sort of material analysis of anything where obviously going to feed a lot of ground to the Republicans on that sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, obviously, we talked we talked about the neoliberal economy, the sort of uh, offshoring of jobs and everything, and nobody ever stops to examine why that led us here and why there's suddenly people from all these countries where the, all the jobs went pouring over the border, yeah. you know? Um, people don't see it like that, and there's obviously a class analysis that lacks, and unfortunately, we don't really have a party in this country uh, that's got anyone willing to do that on a large scale anymore unfortunately I, I, and i think that's the interesting thing uh, too is again I'm, I'm impressed by the ilwu because um can we just talk about some of the more radical movements that go on after 2002 um 2008 obviously and around that period they're involved with occupy in a lot of areas i, I know the oakland chapter is uh very active um the Oakland chapter of occupies are active with the locals. What happens in 2013 that causes the members to vote to leave the AFL-CIO again? Okay. Um, the question of, well, let me. Because that's, that's an odd time to, to do yeah. such because everyone is sort of in retrenchment here. So I, I, I'm not clear on what happens here. And obviously yeah. they're hit with the Taft-Hartley investigation early in the 2000s, but what happens later in the after Obama's in and you know Occupy is yeah. going and things like this? Well, um, 
there was a point when they supported Occupy and Big Bob and Sylph initially thought it was, you know, impressive, uh, but came to the belief that, um, you know, it was it was a it was a threat to the contract and a threat to the jurisdiction of the LW and in the Bay Area, so they kind of backed off on it. And there are people who still think that it was not a good idea to do that. Um, other people think that that salvaged the union in some sense or kept it on track from you know getting into more trouble than it can handle. Um, so there was that. Uh, what happened was during the EGT strike. That was um, EGT is. Um, a company in the Northwest that uh, was owned by a conglomerate of big grain handling organizations and the LW had an, an important uh, jurisdiction in the Northwest and it was not a small industry, something like a quarter or something of the third of the, of the uh, grain in the United States goes over that goes overseas, goes over the docks in the Northwest. So the grain jurisdiction was a big deal. And the union had jurisdiction over, over grain handling going back to the 1930s. But the new new company called EGT, uh, Export, e Export Grain Terminal, those guys came in. Um, they had holdings in uh, Japan and elsewhere. They were, they were owned by a, something of a conglomerate that had millions and millions and millions of dollars. And they said, we're going to set up a new grain handling facility in Longview, Washington. And initially, it sounded like they were going to, uh, along with the ILW, having been there since they'd been there for years and years. And then they decided not to. And they decided, uh, we don't want to accept the ILW. And so uh, what they did was they accepted another organization, uh, which was part of another jurisdiction, or, or another international. It, kind of rogue local really that sort of took, uh, was ready to take a contract from EGT. And the union said, no, we can't do that. And they said, this is a threat to all of our grain handling jurisdiction in the Northwest. We can't stand for that. And so they struck and they had demonstrations and all kinds of things. Well, what happened during that time was Bob goes to the, um, goes to the AFL CIO and says, uh, there's a rogue organization here, wants to get in on our jurisdiction. We can't let that happen. You have to help us out. And the AFL CIO refused to do so. Uh, they were, you know, the other organization really had more members and really had more clout, I think, probably at the international or at the level of the AFL CIO, not the international level. So <clears throat> McElrath looked at that and he said, you know, I talked with um, the head of the AFL CIO. Uh, was basically told, you know, you're not going to get any help from us. Essentially, that's what he was told. And he said, why should we continue to be members of it? Well, the relationship between the ILW and the 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 AFL-CIO uh, as a problem really goes back to the time when there was just a CIO in 1950. The, the union came into the CIO in 1937. But when the, when the, when the McCarthy period came along, um, the, AF, AF, the CIO, which the ILW was a member of after 1937, um, the CIO says, we're going to kick out uh, the left-led unions, the ones we think are left-led. And that included the ILW and 10 other organizations. So they're kicked out between 1949 and 1950. Um, so the union was independent at that time. And they stayed independent till about 1988, as I recall, when they 
when they went back into the what was AFL CIO, the, the AFL and CIO came together in 1955 to make that clear. So about 1988, the LW, you know, old issues having kind of died down, other things had developed. There was the people in the Hawaii organization or local wanted to be part of the AFL CIO. They go back into AFL CIO. And that lasts until Bob decides they're going to leave and the membership um, backs him up too. And the 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 the, the delegates to uh, the LW convention in 2012 backed him up. They said, "Okay, you know, you got you have the power to do this because everything's voted on. The LW is not top down; it's all worker controlled, worker, you know, rank and file pushed." And Miguel, I said, "You know, we give we give them a bunch of money every year to be a member. They deserted us in our hour of need in the Northwest, so we're going to leave." So they did. Whether that was wise enough, I think one can debate all night, but that's what happened. Right, and I absolutely get it. I mean, it happens here. Obviously, the UAW is a mem member, and there's been a long time where members were discouraged from striking here. And like I said, this is obviously uh, home to a lot of Teamster activity for a long time. And that was always, you know, Teamsters were always discouraged from striking. And now you see things like the Teamsters going to bat for the UPS uh employees where it almost leads to a strike and I, it's it's the uaw goes on strike and tries out new strike methods you know and and it's a strange time to see these unions being so active now but at the time obviously the ilwu leaves it, it's much different and i think that's that's sort of the period that's sort of the story from reagan through all the way through like the economic collapse of 2008 really you know and it sort of reels out from there but yeah, I think that's it's interesting because it's it happens to the ILWU faster because they're more radical. It seems like you know the the change in the attitude. It, it they learn much faster from these things rather than capitulating. They sort of look for a new strategy and a new angle to come in at. And like you said, it's adapting to automation and things like that. They're they're moving forward, right? It seems they're always moving forward, and that that is. Uh, do you think that's a result of the? truly democratic nature of the union. I think the democratic nature of the union is very important. Um, one point of interesting uh, fact is <clears throat> the Longshore Division coastwide, it is, you know, Oregon, Washington, California, um, is really not struck since 1971. There've been little strikes and in little industries and little kind of associated organizations, but the Longshore Division is careful with the strike weapon. Um, now, every time there's a negotiations, then there's always a threat there. And there are little job actions, so-called, sometimes on the docks and difficulties, you know, arise of one sort or another. And the employer knows the union will strike if it really is pushed to the wall. So there's always that concern there on the part of the employer uh, in negotiations. But, you know, technically they, they were locked out in 2002. Um, but they, uh, you know, because of their past, because of their strength, I think that's been illustrated at various times. Um, you know, they, they've they not had to use the strike weapon all that often. I, yeah, I th and I, I think that we're sort of, you know, again, seeing the much more... Um, 
uh, a lot of this is, is we're seeing it in a lot more areas we wouldn't see it before. There's like nurses who are doing sort of practice strikes right now in Michigan, these sort of practice strikes where nobody's missing work or anything like that. But that's enough to bring people to the table now. So I think we do see a point where clearly they're they're perturbed by the amount of this activity happening at the top now. And I, I think that the ILWU sticking to this, the guns of, again, not using the strike weapon unless you have to, but always having the ability there to sort of rile up some segment of workers or support other segments of workers. And I think the the cross-industry solidarity we're seeing now is a lot different than we've seen the last 20, 30 years or so. Um, and I, I think the ILWU sort of is a picture of that before we really start to see it the way we're seeing it now, whether it be something like, you know, the larger AFL-CIO unions now that are have much more solidarity with people. This is a pattern we always saw from the ILWU with a lot of things. Um, the 2002 lockout, uh, 2008, there's the May Day protests, which are big uh, anti-war protests at a time where that's, that's not something really being discussed. Um, and I, I'm not sure how this came about. I, do you have any insight into that, actually? I mean, what, what specifically are you? This is to? the sort of the May Day protests in 2008 around this period where there was a sort of there's always been an anti-war strain to the ILWU. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's yeah. not present with a lot of other unions. And, and where does that come from? Is it sort of the internationalism of bridges left over still or? in the character of the union the way it started or is this just the international nature of it its job i don't know what uh, what makes the ilwu yeah. so progressive on war and anti-war issues i think a lot of that does go back to bridges i do think um in a way bridges you know put his stamp on the union and it's still there i mean he had an anti-war stance for the most part after world war ii where world war ii is a different story Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the union went along with the uh, no strike pledge idea. Most of the other unions during the during the big war, but in subsequent er periods of time, when the Americans began, uh, unfortunately, to begin to look a little bit like neo colonialists in some way, and you know, you can look at the war in Vietnam that way. I mean, very easily. Right. Um, even back to the war in in Korea, nineteen fifty. You know, Harry opposed basically opposed that and the union opposed that and there were many left liberals the union has been a home for you know progressives and leftists ever since the beginning i mean there's a long long tradition to that and i can remember big marches against the war in vietnam you know um a big march against uh, the war in iraq for example when that first started started up uh, and the union had the hundreds and hundreds of people came out for those marches. And that impulse, I think, is still there to a great degree. And that was part of 08. 08 is kind of complicated, but, you know, uh, nonetheless, you know, I think that's why the union just got this social justice core to it. And to a great degree, it may be because it's rank and file, a rank and file pushed union. You know, there is union democracy. Everybody votes on everything. Right. Longshore division is the strongest division. Before you have a contract, you have a Longshore Caucus. Once you have the contract, uh, uh, you know, agreed upon by the No Sheeting Committee, which you know, you know, 
meets with the employer, then you have a vote on whether we're going to take the contract, whether we're going to resist the contract, you know. And the employer is always looking at that and saying, you know, it's very hard to make a deal with these guys because they don't they don't go for that very much. Um, it's pretty obvious, you know. And the social justice thing, I mean, goes back to nineteen to and I think the union is very famous and strong for that. It goes back to the thirties. Bridges said, um, we're going to take in black workers. There had been a literally white organization on the census of waterfront that right. was broken and in strikes. Yeah, in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit different story in the Pacific Northwest. But, you know, Bridges looked at the at the situation and said, we cannot have some people excluded because the employer can recruit them to work during strikes or whatever. You know, we got to take everybody in. And that kind of is still there. I mean, this is, you're talking 1934. This is years before the famous civil rights movement, you know, 30, 20, 30 years before, you know. And the, I think the union still got that that aspect to it. Absolutely. I think you see that still now. You you do see that still now. You see in, in 2020, the union um, supports the George Floyd protest, which is not something a union typically does. You know, think of another yep. large union that comes out and says something like that. In 2022, there's the uh, refusal to unload Russian cargo, right, uh, from the old war in Ukraine. Things that are outside the scope of your job or your living, you know, yeah. your your pay, your benefits. I mean, none of this has anything to do with any of this. And yet the ILWU still pursues these actions and, you know, has these moments of solidarity. And I think that that's always been... What really made it obviously that is what makes them unique, but that's always what it made what made it really impressive to me is the these causes are so far outside of the scope of what a union would do, an industrial union especially, what what they would do. And I I enjoy as far as the last 20 years of my life or whatever, you know, things might be changing now, but seeing the sort of social justice aspect has always been impressive to me and i think i think it's probably added a lot to the character of the west coast as well oh there's no question um bridges himself one time said it is our responsibility it's our job we can complain about foreign affairs people have said why do you talk about foreign affairs you're you know you're you're a labor union he said it's our right and that's our responsibility you know and in one level i mean you can see you can you know if you were on the side of the angels, and, and I would argue the LW always has been, you're all going to look a little bit widely beyond just your own little job and your own little situation. You know, the ILW local in San Francisco, local number 10, um, has been um, African-American majority since 1969. And to, just to take one local, they've come out for all kinds of causes over the years. You know, they were... They, they had a big, in 1984, they had a, a big boycott of, of um, products uh, from uh, South Africa, you know. Right, right. It was a, there was a big, wild, it was a wildcat strike over, over that. Um, and there have been activists involved in every aspect of civil rights from that local. And, you know, and the people from the Northwest, which is kind of interesting, some of the people from the Northwest locals, and I have this in one of the latter chapters of that book, you know, they they went they went out to uh, support the um, uh, the Native Americans during the big pipeline beef in the Dakotas. You know, That's at right. that particular, and you know, 
the guy who's now the international secretary treasurer, uh, Ed Ferris, and and Bob El, um, Bobby Elvera, who's now the vice president of international, they both went, you know, in the cold and so forth. You know, it was cold and snowy, and they yeah. went to the coast yeah. to help out. You know, um, and that's just kind of like a, a more recent example of the same kind of thing. You know, and that didn't have anything directly you could say to to do with um, how much money you get going to work on the docks. But the union says our strength is in part so that we can help the, the rest of the humanity. We are a humane organization and we're driven by humane considerations. Um, I hope this is helpful. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely. I think that's a good place to sort of kind of bring it to an end because I think that's that's something that, that I think you get from uh we got from churn talking to robert Cherney about bridges and i got from this book as well is the union has a radical history it's always been a radical democratic organization and that puts it outside of the sort of diamond watch you know gold watch union guys who had who had buddied up to the you know these sort of robber barons early on in the game and i think that the uh, this book labor under siege um by my guest harvey schwartz i want to plug it again because i think this is a good demonstration of a radical union that's still fully democratic independent in the modern era and how it how it how it acts at what causes it stands with and what actions it undertakes and how it protects its employers so um i i really want to thank you for joining me and i i really enjoyed the book so and I'll read the next one if you have one. <laughs> Thank you very much, James. Thank you uh, for having me on the program. Yeah, it was wonderful talking to you. And uh, yeah, the, again, book is Labor Under Siege by Harvey Schwartz, uh, compiled with Ronald E. Magden. Um, I guess you can find it anywhere, right? I saw it a bunch of places. So yeah, check it out. It's, and, it, okay. Thank well, you, James. Go ahead. If you had anything. Oh, yeah. It's, it's University of Washington Press. Okay. People can get it. Right. It's on. It's on sale in the usual places. You, there's there's also a local five of the ILW in Portland. Um, if you order the book through the, they work at, at the uh, bookstore up there, Bell's Books. If you order it through their portal, they get they get a little bit of a of a, of a kickback for their um, uh, their strike fund. So you know, that's way to, one way to order and and yeah, other buy places. from them. If you're listening, yeah. buy from them. <laughs> yeah, go, go right. look into local fives portal for that. All right. Thank you. I'll put, I'll find the link and put it in the description. So, hey, all right. Great. <laughs>